Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. We are just about to hit the first anniversary of the moment when COVID-19 came crashing down on America full force. When the country first went into lockdown, there were dire and indeed apocalyptic predictions as to the economic and financial impacts of the pandemic, forecasts of mass unemployment, real estate Armageddon, and a cataclysmic stock market crash that had some super savvy Wall Street types racing to cash out their holdings and stuff their greenbacks into their mattresses. A year later, it is clear that some of these predictions were spot on. The economic pain that COVID has unleashed has been far-reaching and severe, especially for those whose incomes and employment status were precarious to begin with. At the same time, however, the stock market has done the opposite of collapse. It has soared to unprecedented heights, spurring a new big casino era on Wall Street, complete with an array of speculative manias, including one, the GameStop Robin Hood meme stock frenzy that captured the nation's attention due to its apparent populist David versus Goliath overtones. And now, just as we are starting to get some good news on the COVID front, vaccinations surging, infection and hospitalization and death rates stabilizing, Wall Street took a tumble last week on fears about, wait for it, the economy heating up too much, risking inflation and rising interest rates. Jesus fucking Christ. To help us sort all this out, I am pleased beyond measure to welcome to the podcast a colleague, friend, and a total mensch the prodigious and prolific New York Timesman behind the paper's pervasive and essential deal book franchise, co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, and author of the definitive history of the 2007-2008 financial crisis, Too Big to Fail, the one and only Andrew Ross Sorkin. The state of capitalism in the midst of COVID is, well, in doubt. Maybe more so than it has been in decades or even a century And that might sound hyperbolic, but I think we're literally on the brink. At the relatively tender age of 44, although maddeningly he could still pass for 34 or even 24, Andrew Ross Sorkin is arguably the country's most important and influential financial and business journalist, and without doubt, it's most plugged in. Starting his career as an intern at the Times when he was still in high school in Scarsdale, New York, publishing 71 byline pieces in the paper by the time he graduated from college, that would be Cornell, working full-time as the Times' London-based European M&A reporter at 22, founding DealBook as a newsletter within the Times in 2001 at the age of 24, Sorkin's off-the-chart precociousness was the stuff of legend in our business. Coming up fast on its 20th birthday this fall, DealBook has grown into a bona fide juggernaut, expanding from one of the first financial news aggregation services on the internet into a semi-autonomous website within the Times empire with a thriving conference business. Its sprawling remit includes economic policy and financial regulation in Washington, venture capital, big tech, and startup culture in Silicon Valley, and much more. Not content with this degree of mastery of the universe and with a ton of free time on his hands every day between midnight and 4 a.m., Sorkin knocked out Too Big to Fail, publishing the book to wide acclaim in the fall of 2009, and then helping HBO turn it into an excellent film of the same name, starring William Hurt, Paul Giamatti, Billy Crudup, Cynthia Nixon, and Topher Grace. With a taste of Hollywood on his tongue, Sorkin went on to co-create the hit Showtime series Billions, and is now developing another film for HBO on the GameStop Robin Hood saga. All of which is part, but only part, of why I was so eager to get Andrew on the pod, I wanted to hear what the folks in the world he knows best are thinking about the new era dawning in D.C. From President Biden's $1.9 trillion, that's trillion with a T, trillion dollar COVID relief and economic recovery legislation, to raising the minimum wage, to the deep polarization that continues to hobble our politics. I wanted to hear all about GameStop and Robin Hood and what that story was really all about, whether the big casino craziness gripping Wall Street has the market finally headed for that long-predicted fall and what is likely to happen to big tech as Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and the rest continue to amass size and scale and power, even as the tides of economic populism rise. And I wanted to hear what Andrew had to say about Wall Street's place in our popular culture, how the world of high finance movers and shakers and makers and breakers has inspired countless enduring portraits on the big screen and the small screen, which seem to inspire both fascination and revulsion in roughly equal measure. But mostly, I just wanted to catch up with my friend Andrew. 
one of the more delightful conversationalists I know and someone from whom I always learn a lot whenever we have lunch or a drink. Because of COVID, we were long overdue for a good long gab. And what better place to remedy that situation than here on Hell and High Water? I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. So that, uh, almost, if it wasn't such a great clip, it would almost be a cliche, but it's such a great clip that it was worth playing as we bring on my friend, Andrew Ross Sorkin to talk here on Hell and High Water. Andrew, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. What a great, what a great line. We're going to talk a little later in the podcast about a bunch of cultural stuff related to Wall Street and American business, but 1987, that movie comes out, Wall Street, Michael Douglas playing Gordon Gecko. Those lines have not aged a day. And, and the character hasn't really aged a day. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's wearing suspenders and you don't see that on Wall Street very much anymore, but like it's a bang up to date thing. Bobby Axelrod and Gordon Gecko, Bobby Axelrod from Billions right. and Gordon Gecko aren't just, you know, they're genetic twins, right? And again, we'll play some Billions stuff a little later too, but it doesn't feel dated at all. There's a lot of, of cultural representations of business and finance that you look at them and go, man, that seems like it's from another age. That one does not feel that way. History repeats itself. Maybe nothing changed between 87 and now, but it's actually in many ways happening all over again. We're seeing this confluence of capitalists on one side, rapacious capitalists in the midst of COVID. We're seeing investors and speculators in the casino all over again. Yeah, yeah. And on the other side, we're seeing a real almost anti-capitalist movement and it's a war. Yes. And I think we're going to, Find out pretty soon who's going to win. Well, we're going to talk about all of that. There's a lot embedded in those statements, and we're going to talk about all of them because I know some of the things you're thinking about. But I mean, let's start with the first of those things, right? Which is rapacious capitalists in the age of COVID. I will tell you that not quite a year ago, middle of March, when COVID really kicked in here, New York shut down, California shut down, we shut down the circus, my Showtime show, a week early, and the nomination fight. And I did a week on MSNBC guest hosting for Nicole Wallace the last week that anybody was in 30 Rock. Mm -hmm. And I walked out that door on that Friday and Diana, my wife and I headed out east to get away, not knowing how long we'd be gone for, not knowing what was to come. And I had a conversation with someone, you know, Mm -hmm. a seasoned Wall Street person who said to me, we're basically getting out of the market. We're moving all of our money to not financial market assets, whether it's real estate or cash, the market is doomed. There's going to be a massive collapse. And my wife, Diana, said to me, should we be doing that? Like, he knows a lot more about this shit than you do. And I was like, I don't know anything about this. I'm a total idiot. But some very smart other people I know said, yeah, that's probably a little extreme. Don't do that. So we didn't do that. And the market has gone ballistic in the last 11 months, as everybody knows. Can you just explain that to me? Like, I'm a three-year-old or like I'm a listener to this podcast, which is not the kind of people who necessarily watch CNBC and know your right. your juju all day long. Right. Like, how do you explain in the midst of this pandemic and this recession and all of this, this explosion that's happened in the stock market? Okay, so first of all, let me just do a mea culpa, which is to say, I didn't know or get this right either. In fact, I had conversations maybe with the same person you're talking about <laughs> and others who pretty much convinced me that we were going back to 2008. Right. That we were having debates about bailouts and we had bailouts and the economy was going to take a very, very long time to recover. And if you believe that there were investors who were clearly jumping out of the market and there were some. What I didn't appreciate, and I think now I do, is two things. One, and this is broadly known, so I'm not saying anything special. Investors are never looking at what's happening tomorrow, and they're definitely never looking at what happened today or yesterday. Right. They're looking at what they think could happen 12 months out, 18 months out, 24 months out. And a lot of them, 
even very early on, maybe were even a little wrong in that they thought this was going to happen pretty quickly, meaning things would get better. Maybe it would take three months, maybe it would take six months, maybe it would take eight months, but they thought it would be better. And so stocks oddly held up while the unemployment rate was soaring because investors were saying to themselves, you know what, we're going to get through this. And on the other side, things are going to get better. Right. And, and that disconnect was real. And on any given day, you'd hear about so many people losing their job and, you, and then you'd see the market up and you'd think, what the hell is happening here? This sounds crazy. The other piece of this is that there's two other views that add to it. One is that technology has become such a big part of the quote unquote marketplace. And a lot of the technology companies were winners in all this. So Amazon was a massive winner, crazy winner. You know, Zoom, who knew Zoom? All of these companies were all of a sudden having this massive success. And the view was that it was going to be a step change for these companies. This was going to propel them into the future in a whole new way. Peloton, obviously, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so that pushed it. And then the last piece was we did politically learn our lesson from 2008, which was the government jumped in and jumped in early, both fiscally and monetarily, meaning we just threw money at it. And when that money got thrown, people said, you can't fight the Fed. You have to play. And that's been, for better or worse, the lesson of all of this. And so people think, and maybe rightly so, we're talking, maybe we're going to have six, 7% growth literally in the third or fourth quarter of this year. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like a, a post-Spanish flu situation. So we might actually have the roaring 20s until we don't, of course. Well, right. Except for now, here we are as, <laughs> of course, at the moment when people are starting to get a little bit of optimism right. about like life returning back to normal. I mean, measured, tempered optimism about COVID cases flattening and death rates flattening and new vaccines coming online. At that moment, all of a sudden, the market and it's kind of traditionally like fucked in the head way is all of a sudden like worried about inflation. And we saw the last week, right. a not great week in the market, like one of the worst weeks in the market since COVID started. So explain that to me and whether you think there's any legitimacy to that, it leads to another set of discussions that I want to have with you about the Biden stimulus and, you know, the big arguments around whether this thing makes a ton of sense or whether it is, you know, coming after five big bipartisan influxes of federal money into the system, whether it's actually too much and we risk actually overheating this thing in the next few months. So there's a great phrase on Wall Street, which is buy the rumor, sell the news. And I think that's what this week was. I think for a year, we were buying the rumor. The market was buying the rumor that things were going to get better. Yeah. And now we're here, right? Vaccinations are starting in earnest. We're starting to see it, hopefully. Things are going to get better. And all of a sudden, it's a bit of a sell the news situation because here we are. And I think there are real questions as to what comes next and what happens next. And you're starting to see interest rates creep up. Well, if interest rates creep up and even get higher, that's all of a sudden competing, if you will, with the stock markets, competing with equities. Investors have a choice about where to put their money. Right. And the big tech stocks, all of a sudden people are saying, mm, maybe I should take a little out over here. You're also seeing, I think, a question of what happens in a post-pandemic world, which is to say, do people really use DoorDash as much? Right. Do people really use Peloton as much? You know, the problem with Wall Street in many ways is it's very, it's even though it's supposed to be long-term thinking, meaning 18, 24 months out, it's very <laughs> short-term thinking. Right. So when they see Peloton doing well and they sort of make these crazy projections, and then the question, of course, is whether it can hold up. And I think that's where we are right now. I started to raise the issue of the stimulus, right? $1.9 trillion right. in stimulus. The House passed this thing late Friday night, early Saturday morning, whatever you want to call it. And you know, in the end, I think there's a pretty broad consensus that on a purely party line basis, it's going to get enacted. And I'm curious, as you talk to people who are across the spectrum, business leaders, financial leaders, economists, right? And I see like mixed signals here, right? There's a partisan split. We can talk about that. But there's also, you know, the Larry Summers of the world, someone, you know, progressive Democrat, you know, who's like too big, inflation, worried. And the market seems to be a little bit buying that notion right now. But then I saw 150 business leaders last week signed on to this thing, including people like Steve Schwartzman. I mean, like hardcore Republicans, like some very serious conservative partisans in the business world who are like, great, go Joe. So I'm just trying to figure out like, what do business 
and finance okay. and the economics world think about this plan. Okay, so the business folks, I'm a, a little secret. I'm gonna I'm gonna whisper here for a second. Okay, I think the business folks, in truth, think it's too much money, but they like it because it's too much money. <laughs> that that's. I'm glad you just keep that keep that under your hat. But yeah, you, okay. I don't know if you remember. There's a guy named Chuck Prince who ran Citigroup sure. into the financial crisis. He had a great phrase, which was, when the music's playing, you got to dance. And that's a little bit of what's going on here. The business community is very happy for the music to play and to play longer and to play louder. And I think there's a view of, we'll figure it out later. Right. Most of the economists I know, frankly, even particularly liberal economists, you mentioned Larry Summers, but others as well, I think are starting to have real concerns about how big the stimulus plan is. I, mean, I think everybody looked at the financial crisis and said, we didn't spend enough. And so now you sit around going, well, okay, are we spending enough? And I think they're looking at some of these programs. I mean, $350 billion of the program doesn't get spent at minimum until 2022, 23, right? Right, right. The $1,400 checks, that's $422 billion of the program. And I think there's an argument to be made even when you think about what's happening in the stock market whether it's GameStop or other kind of casino speculation, part of it as actually stimulus checks are ending up there. I'm not saying across the board, and they're clearly people who are vulnerable, who desperately need it. And I desperately wish we had a more precise way to get people money. Yes, right. But I think people are looking at all of that saying, mm, maybe it's too much. And then, of course, you know, there's a question of whether it's just being larded up with other pet projects. Yeah. Anybody who cares to go read, you know, the CBO projections about this and realizes that there's so many billions of dollars that got passed in the December right. bill that have not been close to spent now. And you look at some of the school spending, not only does it get spent until this year and doesn't get spent next year, there's billions being outlaid all the way out to 2028. Totally. You know, Joe Biden could be on his way out of office mm -hmm. if he serves two terms and you'd still be spending down some money from this stimulus. And I'm not critiquing that. There's arguments for it, but- there's a little bit of that. And it's not, again, just Republicans who have that. Some people are having a little bit of a question about whether they might be a little bit going overboard. On the other hand, as you point out, there is a little bit of like, hey, I'd rather make that mistake than make the mistake. Well, I think it, honestly, short. it's a precision issue. You know, and I, yeah. I was talking to Janet Yellen. We did this conference this week. Yes. And that was the issue. I, I think the argument that the administration makes privately and in some cases publicly when pushed is we don't have the apparatus in this country to actually precisely decide who actually deserves it and who should get it and who's really out of work, who's really been impacted and who hasn't. Right. And I think the view is, you know what, if we have to spend a little extra, maybe we spend a little extra. The question is how much extra? Right. Is it, are we talking about a couple hundred billion extra? Well, oh, that sounds like a lot to begin with, but are we talking about a trillion extra? Because we're talking about something that's close to $2 trillion. And I don't think we know the answer. I want to give props to this thing. The DealBook DC policy project and your amazing sub-brand underneath the New York Times' shingle deal book, which started out as a very narrow Wall Street thing, you know, and then became a broader business and finance and economics yep. thing, and now overlaps into a lot of public policy stuff. Yep. And you guys did this thing in D.C., not really in D.C. because it was mostly virtual, right. but, but it was a D.C.-focused yep. thing last week and had a lot of very interesting people speaking at it, one of whom I saw you interview was Mitt Romney, who, you know, has kind of embodies at this point the tripartite Republican critique of this bill now, which is the thing we just talked about, yep. too big liberal laundry list. That's one thing. The second thing is process. You know, Joe Biden promised bipartisanship, not giving it to us. He's right. jamming this thing through on a party line basis. We were ready to deal with him. Romney was one of those supposedly moderate senators who went up to the White House very early in the process and said, hey, we're ready to spend $650, $680 billion. You know, you guys want 1.9, let's negotiate. And that didn't go anywhere right. negotiation wise. And then the third thing is you guys are backsliding on the schools. I wonder what you took away from that conversation with Romney, because obviously he's one of the, one of the very few yes. sane Republicans left, right? And yet his critique is now the same critique that you know the the whack jobs in the party are also making, and that's a kind of dangerous place for the administration to be when you've got a unified Republican party saying we're not on board for this thing. You know, Senator Romney said he went and obviously went and visited with with Biden, and I think he was expecting there to be some kind of back and forth. And the question about the back and forth is, was the gap just too wide? I mean, if you're at 1.9 and the others are at 680, 700, 650, whatever your number, is there no middle ground? The one thing the senator said, which did strike me, is he said, look, they're going to pass it and they're going to pass it their way. And I get it because if we were in their shoes, meaning if we had control, 
we'd pass it too. Right. And I think, unfortunately, that speaks to where Washington is right now. And I think it's not where he wants it to be, obviously. But it's funny because I didn't think it was where Biden wanted it to be either. Right. But then again, maybe this is the lesson of the post-financial crisis 2008. You remember when President Obama got in that office, you know, he campaigned on wanting to bring Washington together. And boy, did he try. And he got pummeled along the way. Yes. I mean, he chased bipartisanship both on the stimulus and on the Affordable Care Act, chased bipartisanship to the ends of the earth for two years and then got, you know, his teeth kicked in in the midterm elections the party did in 2010, partly because, as you know, again, the big lesson that their recovery act turned out to be too small by everyone's agreement at this point. And I think it is one of the lessons that Biden learned. And I, I but I agree with you. I think Joe Biden would love to be able to get some Republican votes. I think that they do not want to waste a lot of time chasing them, though, given the various crises that they're confronting. Let me ask you one other question about one sub-element of this debate, which is this minimum wage debate. And I'm curious, again, to hear, I mean, that was one of the things we learned. Senate parliamentarian this week said, no, you can't pass minimum wage increase to 15 bucks or any kind of minimum wage increase through the reconciliation process that would let Democrats pass a bill with a narrow majority, 51 votes. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, again, go to business, right? You hear such different points of view about this. You know, we've had some notable CEOs stand up and say, yeah, I'm already committed to 15. I think 15 is right. We've had a lot of economists who say, hey, there's been a revolution in labor economics. The reality is a gradual increase in minimum wage isn't going to hurt jobs at all. And then you've got a lot of people in the traditional orthodoxy, which says raise minimum wage. You're going to kill jobs. You're going to crush jobs. Give me your sense because you spend a lot more time talking to people who are actual job creators than I do about how they see that debate. Well, look, let's start with just the numbers. And I usually buy the CBO for the most part. I don't think it's a political organization. And I think that they do a relatively good job. So it would help 27 million Americans. No question. It would likely hurt 1.4 million Americans, right? 1.4 million Americans, according to the CBO estimate, would lose their job. And so there's a question, what's the balance? And I think, you know, As the president of the United States, I don't know if the president wants to think of himself as the CEO of the United States. You know, how do you measure that balance, right? The companies that have come out for $15 or more an hour, frankly, can afford to do it. It's just math. They're in a position to do it. In certain ways, they want to pressure their competitors to do it, who they think can't afford to do it. So there's a showmanship issue to it. There's a marketing issue to it. Those that can do it are doing it, but they're doing it because they actually think it's good for their business. You know, Mitt Romney would tell you, and you know, Mitt Romney you know, paired up with Tom Cotton, by the way, <laughs> for this proposal, that the minimum wage really should be at $10 and should be phased in gradually. And it's true, if it was at $10, you would not lose the 1.4 million. Also, that 27 million number would come down. And I think you have to think about just what that means. I think that's the debate. You know, people haven't pushed Romney on this, you could go from 10 to 12, you know, to 14, 15 over a period of time, and, and maybe you get there. We're all headed on the same journey. The question is, how quickly you get there? I think that's the fundamental question. And I think that small businesses are scared. Yeah. But we'll see what happens. By the way, yeah. if the economy rips, the economy could rip. If everyone's vaccinated, yeah. the economy could yeah. rip. And maybe $15 is totally fine in most places in the country. The one question I'd ask, though, which I still don't understand, is why in so many of the cities and municipalities and states that have not tried to enact something along the order of $15 an hour, why they haven't, right? Right. Why hasn't that happened? Right. You you would think that the people would say, yeah, this makes no sense and I'm going to go vote. Yeah, (laughs) it's a good question. It's one of the great challenges of the Democratic Party trying to like somehow have this issue that around which there's so much public support. And then they have been for various reasons stymied and not able to get it done in a lot of places. Obviously, there's these regional variations and there's differences from place to place. But it is one of those great conundrums where you'd like to think that an issue that has 75 or 80 percent of the public behind it wouldn't be that hard to get. Shouldn't be that hard. This one turns out to be super hard for a variety of reasons. And why don't Republicans lose points with the public over this issue? Uh, in some sense, I mean, obviously, we don't be too Marxist here, but, you know, there's obviously a difference between business and labor. On the other hand, you know, we're all in the same boat on some level. And I don't mean to be naive about it, but you would think that, like, some of these companies that have seen it as being in their corporate interest to have a happy workforce that can feed itself, that there would be some way in which there would be some enlightened self-interest that would come into play on the part of Republicans in their alliance with business, making some kind of gradual progress towards this, especially in light of all this economic data that suggests that a gradual increase over time isn't really a massive job killer. It just feels like a place that would be ripe for a bunch of win-wins here. Easy. I would think it'd be easy. 
But here we are at $7.25 an hour, and it's a shame. But a lot of people hurting. You know, I ask you about one other area for just the perspective from business, because, you know, we did in our last episode of The Circus, we focused on the climate thing mm-hmm. and from Biden rolling out all this, you know, trying to put the prism of climate on all of the policy going forward that they're going to do, especially a big thing like infrastructure that's going to be an even bigger bill than this stimulus bill. They're talking about a three to four trillion dollar bill right. on infrastructure mm-hmm. that is going to apply the lens of climate to everything related to infrastructure. and. The fascinating thing, again, from my outsider's perspective, is I'm amazed to see Ford and GM and Delta all kind of saying stuff that would have been unthinkable even a few years ago about how fast they're moving towards electric vehicles, towards carbon neutrality, towards all that stuff. Am I right? The long-term thing here has always been you got climate on one side, you got jobs on the other side, and people would say the future is green energy, but the question was when is the future going to come? I guess my question is, from the point of view of business and the market, is the future now really finally here? So I think the future is not necessarily here right this second, but for the first time, the business community, the CEO community is saying to themselves, you know what, I'm looking down this tunnel and I see the light at the end that basically says we are going to have to deal with carbon. I think the view is, if you believe the Paris Climate Accord, we're going to have to deal with carbon and we're going to have to somehow get to net zero by 2050. So if that's true and it's happening around the world, we're going to have to deal with it. And guess what? It's 2021. So we don't have a lot of time to figure this out. Now, there are some companies, whether it's Microsoft or Google or Apple, who are trying to get ahead of this and, by the way, can afford to get ahead of it with some very ambitious plans very early on. And they'll get credit for that with the public and their employees and everybody else. There's a competitive element to it in that regard. But I think for a lot of the others who have been resistant up until now, I think there's just a general acceptance. I think a lot of these companies, at least privately, used to fight it. I mean, they'd acknowledge it, but then they'd sort of pretend it's not real or, you know, all of that. And so I think now they're saying, okay, you know what? The fight is over. We're going to have to, I don't know, embrace it, but we're going to have to figure it out. And I think that's what you're starting to see. Also, you're starting to see for the first time investors actually assign multiples to companies based on what their climate risk is going to look like in the future. And they're starting to say, okay, we're going to give Tesla a lot more credit than most other companies for this. And I think if you're Mary Barr running GM, you're like, Jesus, that's unbelievable. And we, I don't know if you saw GM changed their logo. It looks like this kind of, uh, you know, new age EV style thing to try to signify we are, you know, we're changing here. It's kind of amazing. And, you know, look, if you look at the way the Tesla has performed, I can see why Mary Barrow would be looking on with some envy at Tesla and saying, give me some of that sugar, please. I have one last question before we take a break in this realm. Mm-hmm. And then I want to talk about the democratization of Wall Street and some of the, the GameStop and Robinhood and all that stuff. But before we get out of where politics intersects with this stuff, mm-hmm. I ask you one last question, which is your perspective. I obviously have one, but I'm not going to hold back. Enunciate okay. It. I'm going to hold back. Well, I mean, I have a perspective on it. But like, again, you're just so much deeper into this world than I have ever been. What you and I would say, you covering Wall Street in the way you do and business the way you do, and me mostly covering it from the perspective of how does it intersect with politics and particularly the donor world of Wall Street and and business, you know, we kind of could say what they thought of Trump for a long time, which was they fucking hated him and he was a clown until he won. He came in and they were like, he's still a clown and we still kind of hate him, but he's doing stuff we really like on regulation and taxes. We're going to put up with it because there's a lot in it for us in terms of our bottom line. But now he's gone. As he hovers out there in the world, what's your view of what I would call the kind of cross-party consensus in the business and financial world, which is really is a consensus that exists. It's not really, I mean, there's Republicans and Democrats, but they all often have the same point of view about these kinds of things. Do they look at Trump and say, God, I hope that guy just stays out of our politics. We don't have to deal with it. I'm glad to see the back of him. Or are there a bunch of people kind of going, be okay if he came back, you know. What's the, oh what's no! The point of view? I think I think on the whole, they they hope that there's a moat around Mar-a-Lago and that the bridge, you know, the bridge is pulled up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's the hope. I think that the business community hates volatility. They hated the tweet storms. They just hated having to wake up every morning and try to grapple with all of that. And I do think there were policies that they liked of his, but I think they had to suppress, and they knew they were suppressing their own view, both about character, but also about judgment. And I think it came back in spades when it came to COVID in terms of how we handled COVID on the piece of judgment. And I think that most CEOs today 
privately, publicly to a large degree would say that. And I think there's going to be a very interesting fight in Washington between business and Biden for the first time. It was, it was fascinating because the fights that happened between business and Trump were usually over his social policies. And I think with Biden, because they got what they wanted on the economy, I think with Biden, we're going to see a shift where like the fight is actually real. It's not just going to be, you know, I don't like immigration or this. And I'm not saying that the immigration fight wasn't a real fight, but I think it's going to be a fight they're going to dig in on because it's going to affect their balance sheet. Right, right. Different kind of fight. All right. It's a good time to take a break. Let's actually do a podcast unusually devoted to matters financial and economic. Maybe we should go and actually do some business here. Let's take a break and do that business, sell some soap flakes, and we'll come back and talk to my friend Andrew Ross Sorkin here on Hell and High Water. I mean, there's a lot of investors out there. Um, this whole phenomenon of these, um, you know, internet stocks uh, has transformed, um, transformed in in the past week, right? Uh, and it has taken uh, this sort of like anti-establishment flavor in some pockets. Um, so, you know, I understand the frustrations that people might have um, with, you know, short selling or these different. Um, uh, these different firms, um, we we think that there is uh, a bottled up. Um, there, there's a lot of bottled up um, energy because a lot of these customers felt like they were uh, left out of the recovery from the 2008 financial crisis. There was the whole Occupy Wall Street movement um, in the early part of the last decade. So I understand the the frustrations. So that's Vlad. Tenev, the the CEO of Robinhood, the democratizing app uh, trading platform for the little guy as itself styles itself. Yep. Talking there with our guest today, Andrew Ross Sorkin on television in the midst of the GameStop controversy. So I'm going to throw you a large question here, pal, because I feel like this GameStop Robinhood thing became one of the rare things from Wall Street where like everybody in the country was talking about it for about a week. Mm -hmm. And like, whether they really understood it or not, some people thought it was a scandal. Some people thought it was really fucking cool. Right. People would never talk about Wall Street, never talk about finance, were absorbed in this story. And I'm sure you got that kind of feedback as you were covering it, that the level of popular fascination that was really quite stunning. So I really just want to throw you a big open-ended question, right? Because there's a lot in this about mm -hmm. the democratization of Wall Street, about the populist spirit in America right now and how it applies to Wall Street, and these particular characters, this Robin Hood and GameStop itself. So I'm just going to throw you the fat one here and say, like, now with a little bit, of, it's a little bit in hindsight, but, like, what do you make of what happened and what does it mean? So I have to admit this thing threw me for a complete loop because it was the opposite of anything I thought that would happen, but more importantly, it was the genesis of it was different than anything I imagined as well. You know, Post-financial crisis, all we did was talking about trying to protect the little guy, trying to protect the small investor. And if you really believe the investors in GameStop, this was about their freedom. This was about their opportunity to stick it to the man and their demonstration that the market unto itself is manipulated. And we're going to show you that we can manipulate it too. And stop trying to protect me, the little guy. Because your protection of me is actually not protecting me at all. You're protecting the establishment. You're protecting the hedge funds. Now, it might have started that way, but every good protest gets co-opted by looters and others. Yeah. And so in the end, the sad, I don't know if it's sad or not, I think the reality is that the hedge funds made off as the winners again, cynically, like maybe they always do. Yeah. And the little guy might have stuck it to the man and stuck it to himself in the process. Is this thing symptomatic of something larger? You've now used the phrase the casino a couple of times. Right. In our open, you said, you know, capitalism on the brink. I want to know what you mean by that and whether this is part of what you're talking about. This kind of, you know, I feel like this is an instance or an example of a thing that's connected to a broader phenomenon set of concerns that we should all be focused on right now when you think about, you know, where we are right now in late stage capitalism in America. Okay, so let's just take as is the argument, though, that there was protest investing because there are people, and I don't, I don't know, we can debate this. There are people who just think this is a classic pump and dump. 
Right. Right. That this is just a pump and dump dressed up with a little Mother Teresa around it. Yeah. And then there's others who think this is like a real thing. So let's assume it's a real thing. You think it's at least a little bit of a real thing, right? I have friends whose 18-year-old kids were like doing this for exactly this reason. They were not pumping and dumping. They right. thought that they were part of a little guy revolution to fuck the hedge funds. Totally. Kids of Wall Street people that I know who were like part of this and were like into it for precisely that reason. Maybe that's not the majority, but that's something. And they didn't care if they lost their money. Correct. Because they were trying Correct. to make a point. Yes. And so I think that part is very, very real. I think that's very real. And I think it represents this moment where people are saying, you know what, the system is so effed. We've watched these guys get so rich, especially during COVID, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. this goes back to the question you were even talking about before. You see the unemployment rate and then you see what the stock market is and you say, this whole thing makes no sense. How is it possible that Jeff Bezos is worth twice as much, you know, when twice as many people are out of work? So I do think that this represents potentially a turning point in the conversation of sorts around what's supposed to happen in the markets. And I don't know if it's about what's supposed to happen in the markets or what's supposed to happen in the economy. I don't know if this therefore translates into some kind of conversation about tax policy in the United States later this year when the Biden administration you know, digs into that in earnest. I don't know how it plays itself out because I think you have two things happening. One is you have a group of people saying, I want to screw the big guy or screw the suits. And at the other end, you have people who say, I want the freedom. There's like a freedom argument going on. I want the freedom to be able to play in the casino. Right. I want to be able to speculate. You know, don't stop me from buying the lottery ticket. I want my shot. But am I wrong to see the GameStop Robin Hood thing and the explosive growth of crypto and NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, right. this notion of like digital tchotchkes that are like now there's an exploding market for, you know, Crypto kitties, and I know that's an older version of this, but now there's new versions of it. And it's like people with, you know, supposedly unique digital assets that live in blockchain, all of this stuff. Am I wrong to see that this is as all part of the same thing in some way? Or are these things that are really, am I like an idiot? And these are wildly, they're all, I know they're discrete phenomenon, but it feels like they're part of the same thing. No, I actually think they're all related in so many ways. By the way, Part of the early GameStop investors, some of them were actually Bitcoin winners who used some of their proceeds from that. But the larger sort of thematic idea, I think, is a very anti-establishment, anti-institution, anti-expert view of the world. By the way, I even think this is like started in 2008. This is like a financial crisis. I can draw the line to it, which is I think that was the moment that people said the experts don't know what they're talking about. The institutions aren't here for me. Government sucks and they're not here for me. And it sort of opened everything up. And Bitcoin was supposed to be the solution to the money piece of it, right? Fed doesn't know what they're doing. It's a mess. This is this other decentralized thing with no expert or no institution at the top. In a way, GameStop is a bit of that in that it may be decoupled from the sort of classic analysts, Wall Street never liked this stock. All these people thought it was crazy, but these people decided they could make it so. Right. And NFTs are a bit that way too. And you layer on top of all of that, the casino thing you've been talking about, right? Which is on top of all of that, fuck the man spirit, that populist spirit, that anti-expert, anti-big guy, anti-elite kind of sentiment. Then there's also this speculative element to it, right? Which is kind of like, you know, hey, there's a big casino playing here. I Let want me in. in. Why I want to see the I want to see table. the table. Give me my shot. This is all about giving my shot. I, by the way, I went on TV one morning when all this was going on, and I I was so concerned for the you know the viewer, the little guy, and I can't tell you. I mean, the amount of people who just torched me, torched me online, saying, "What are you talking about, Sorkin? You know, why are you trying to protect us from doing this when we are basically losing our shirt buying lottery tickets? We can go to Vegas and." play the tables there and everyone can lose their shirt. You know, we're allowed to lose our shirts in every place except this one. And they want their shot. I really think there is an element of that. And what's so backwards about this in a weird way is because of COVID, a lot of people actually have more money than they ever had, not less. And so they're trying to put it somewhere. That's literally what's going on. They haven't been going to the clubs at night. They haven't been doing all this other stuff. So now this is their version of the club. And they're showing off right. and doing all it's that there's a whole thing going on. Right. They've saved money and it's accessible online in a way that Wall Street has always felt more forbidding, even though you could do a lot of stuff online. But somehow this has all made it 
you know, it's app driven and it's super easy. Like it's idiot proof in some sense. I mean, right. not in the largest sense, idiot proof in terms of how to execute what you want to do, not idiot proof in the sense of whether you're going to lose money or make money. But well, the problem is the house always wins, but you could right. This is like, you can do DraftKings or you can do this. Yes. Right. And when you said that you think that capitalism, late stage capitalism is on the brink, what did you mean? Is this some of the stuff that's feeding into your sense of it? Totally. Because I think you have two things. You have a whole group of people who are both playing the markets on one side, but they're playing the markets, recognize they know that the game is rigged and they don't care. They're trying to take advantage of the rigged game on one side. And then on the other side, you have a political class and just a whole part of the country, I think, that says this whole thing doesn't just doesn't work. You know, and I think we had the conversation with the minimum wage in the United States. So I think we're having conversations about universal basic income in this country. I don't know where that goes, but I think there's going to be, I think over the next four years, maybe longer. I don't know if it's this administration or the next one. However, this ends, because this is going to end at some point. Right. I think it's going to create an inflection point where the question really gets asked. One of the things of now being an old man and having covered you know, this political game for over 30 years like the two defining features of that time for me, the big stories of my career have been polarization and populism, right? And the populist thing on the left and the right that drove Trump and drove Sanders, different kinds of populism, dramatically different to be clear, but the same kind of animating impulse that turned those guys into cult figures of a certain kind in their respective ideological cadres is a giant story. And I just don't see it, even though Joe Biden you know, was not that. And even though he was, you know, arguably the only person who could beat Donald Trump, the forces that are driving the, both the polarization, but certainly the populism are not like in any way, don't seem to me to be ebbing at all. And quite, quite the contrary. And so I do, you know, in a less sophisticated way than you, when it comes to the markets and business, I do sort of see that confluence of just, there's still just a lot of broken lives and a lot of anger and a lot the question of is, does it especially come to a head? driven at the overclass because the overclass right. has gotten so much richer and so much more dominant culturally and financially that like their anger at it is much more pointed and much more passionate than it's ever been right. before, I think. But does it come to a head or is, you know, we talked about Michael Douglas at the top. Is this just another example? And we'll do this conversation ourselves in 20 years yeah. and we'll find the next one. Right. Well, maybe. And, you know, again, I, I make no predictions like my favorite political philosopher, Yogi Berra, who always said that prediction is yes. difficult, especially about the future. I don't like to make predictions. But I will ask you this as I bring this second segment <laughs> of our discussion to a close. You mentioned Amazon before, and I, I am interested in this. Again, a thing in my career, I've spent a few years out in San Francisco covering Silicon Valley at the New Yorker magazine and writing the letter from Silicon Valley and wrote a book about Bill Gates and Microsoft. Brilliantly so. So I am interested in just the amazing amount of the growth in both the market capitalization right. and the market power of that handful of companies, you know, Facebook and, and Amazon and Twitter, that core Google, obviously, you know, the fang companies. What do you see there? What do you see happening? You know, when I wrote about the Microsoft antitrust trial, that was the first moment where there was really after two decades of Silicon Valley barefoot billionaires, creators of the new economy. We love them. We love them. All of a sudden, there was this worry about power, concentrated power in the technology sector. And it rose up and it smite Bill Gates in a way. And then it, it went away. You know, Now these companies have way more power, I would say, even than Microsoft had right. at its peak. But you hear the rumblings in DC about antitrust and privacy and other things. Where do you see that going? And do you sense any kind of a movement in the country broadly and in our politics to try to do anything to constrain the power of those companies? So this is like the trillion dollar, the multi-trillion dollar question. And what I don't know is it's funny. Had Trump won, I actually thought these companies were going to get broken up. Mm. I did. Mm. What I, which is, you know, completely at odds with everything you would have thought. What I don't know under the Biden administration, frankly, is what their appetite for antitrust is going to be. I think there'll be some, but I could also see it be tempered, meaning, you know, the case against Google, they put some regulations on it. They make it a little more difficult for them. I don't know. Look, could you break up Facebook? Yes. If you broke up Facebook, how would you do it? You'd make Facebook one thing. You'd make Instagram another thing. You'd make WhatsApp another thing. And maybe you'd make the other bets another thing. Would that create more competition? Probably would, right? Google, separate Google from YouTube, gets a little more complicated after that, maybe separate Google Cloud. Amazon, 
if you broke Amazon up between the retail business and the AWS cloud business, maybe you stop. I mean, it's sort of hard to figure out what the right answer is. Do you stop Amazon from allowing its platform to be used for third-party sellers? Because one of the things you, you keep seeing is that Amazon right. has this strange tendency, and maybe it's not so strange, to look at the data, see what's selling, and then to make their own white label version of it and compete with them. <laughs> at least strange so, thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, which has been going on forever yeah. in all sorts of industries. It's just being done with precision in a particularly unique way at Amazon. Yeah. And there's part of me that says, well, you know, they've also helped all these small businesses around the world, frankly, by using the platform. And then a couple have gotten screwed. And then there's another view that's like, well, if you stop the platform from doing that, sort of Elizabeth Warren would say, pick one, either sell your own stuff or sell everybody else's stuff, but that's it. Do I think that some outcome of those possibilities will happen? I, I do. It's hard to think that this is going to go away. Now, whether it gets all settled in the next four years, that I don't know. I think this is a conversation, if it doesn't get settled up in the next four years, that we're going to be having for the next decade, because this is this is the new oil. There's no other way to think about it's it. It's interesting to me that like, I think people hate Mark Zuckerberg in a way that I don't think people hate Jeff Bezos. Right. And I literally think that matters. I think Amazon, as much as, it, as there are pockets of people who hate it, everybody is so addicted to it at this point. Yep, they're wedded to it. Yes. And by the way, it's helped. It's improved people's lives in many ways. No one will yell at me when I say this, but I know Amazon's business practices, labor practices. I know there are people out there who are pissed at them for a variety of things, but- in everyday America, most people are like, I'm really glad I have Amazon, man. They're like, there's a reason why they have Amazon Prime. They like the value. You know, Jeff Bezos' relentless focus on keeping customers satisfied. People are generally pretty satisfied. They like Amazon. Right. I don't, you don't hear a lot of people mad at Jeff Bezos out in the world. You hear a lot of people who fucking hate Mark Zuckerberg and hate Facebook and hate Twitter and, and see those as being a source of a different kind of set of social ills. Right. They seem a lot more vulnerable to me politically than the commerce companies do because they're in the middle of this other discussion about misinformation, disinformation, about parents who are worried about their kids right. being online too much. There's a confluence totally. of things that make them more vulnerable, it seems to me. Totally. But but I would say, given that you covered the Microsoft trial, you'll appreciate this better than most, I think, which is who's got the bigger moat around them really, right? Amazon's got the real moat. It's like a physical moat. Yeah. You know, Facebook, sure, owns a huge part of the business. But if I had said the word, you know, TikTok to you two years ago, you would have looked at your watch, right? Um, I, still, I, you know, still, I still might. You know, if I said Clubhouse, yeah. you would, you know, talk about maybe going to a game or I don't know what. Yeah, yeah. And here we have this new audio, you know, social media enabled app. Yeah. So I don't know. I actually do think that the Clubhouses of the world and the TikToks and others you know, I do believe there's still innovation in the valley in, in, in certain ways. And so I don't know what happens to a Facebook, but I 100% agree with you. I think that yeah. the public hates social media. It's funny. The public loves to hate social media and also love social media because they're addicted to it. And I think part of it is they hate the addiction. Well, look, I'm the biggest addict of all. And, and this is actually a good time to break up. Uh, I got to order some products of Andrew Ross Orkins on Amazon right now. I don't know where my copy of Too Big to Fail is. Oh, God bless you. Speaking of too big to fail, when we come back after this break, we're going to do like Wall Street and popular culture because Andrew Ross Sorkin, in addition to being a brilliant journalist, a great television personality, a brilliant guy, knows this world better than anybody on planet Earth, is also now an increasingly, increasingly fecund source of cultural artifacts that shape the way America thinks about these assholes <laughs> who work in business and finance. We're going to talk about that after this break on Hell and High Water. The depression may have started because of a stock market crash, but what hit the general economy was a disruption of credit. Average citizens unable to borrow money, to do anything, to buy a home, uh, start a business, stock their shelves. Credit has the ability to build a modern economy, but lack of credit has the power to destroy it swiftly and absolutely. If we do not act, boldly and immediately, we will replay the depression of the 1930s. Only this time, it will be far, far worse. We don't do this now. We won't have an economy on Monday. So there's Paul Giamatti in the HBO film, Too Big to Fail. 
yep. playing Ben Bernanke. And we're back with Andrew Sproskin, who wrote the book Too Big to Fail. Had that movie made a little bit before the movie got made of a book that I wrote called Game Change. And so Andrew and I had this weird, like kind of common, we both, we had HBO movies made on the basis of books that we wrote at roughly the same time. Yep. It's funny when I had somebody reach out to you to say, hey, what should we pull from Too Big to Fail to play? You picked this Bernanke thing, which I had picked on my own. Oh, wow. And so it's a very nice little piece of sound, partly because Paul Giamatti is is also plays, so is also in Billions. Yes. Another series that Andrew has uh, co-created with my yep. friends, Brian Koppelman and David Levine on Showtime. So I just ask you, man, how do you feel about this? You know, you and I have talked about this offline on various occasions, but I'm curious at this juncture, Too Big to Fail is your only book still, right? Only book. Right. Give, no, give I don't time. mean that in a mean way. I mean, no, that's no, just no. like, I'm not missing. Totally. There was not a book that I missed, right? No, you haven't missed one. An incredible book that kind of defines the financial crisis, 2007, 2008, that Andrew wrote. I'm curious how you feel just about the whole thing at this point. Looking back on it, the book, the movie, and I want to talk about Billions, and I want to talk about this new thing that you're yep. working about, a film project related to GameStop. But just talk to our listeners a little bit about what it's like to go through that thing of writing a big, epic, important book and then seeing it made into a movie, and now how you look back on it and how it informs your aspirations going forward. Oh, goodness. Well, so I still think that Too Big to Fail was the hardest thing I ever did in my life, probably. And you think maybe the most proud of for me, for me, it was a personal competition just to see whether I could even do it. Unlike you writing books and magazine articles for years, I probably had never written more than 5,000 words in my whole life <laughs> at one time. So writing 120,000, or I think it turned into more than that was unto itself sort of a challenge. To me, it was just a fascinating experience. I learned so much from it, both the writing of the book and then co-producing the movie. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. And I learned so much just about how that whole business works and have the opportunity to work with a Paul Giamatti was, you know, sort of beyond and to see it sort of get into the culture and to be able to explain something. I mean, look, these topics that we're talking about are complicated things. And a lot of people don't even want to engage with it because it feels hard. And so all I wanted to do is figure out a way to take people inside it and make it human and make it traumatic. It, it didn't didn't really need me to make it traumatic because I thought it was, but to tell it as a personal story and a human story, as opposed to a story about institutions and numbers and whatnot. So there's not much to say, except that it was a fascinating experience that's really sort of opened my eyes to other things that I then was able to get involved in, like Billions and other projects. Yeah, it does whet your appetite, right? Because I think we both say, you know, writing a book is a uniquely challenging thing and you're proud of it in a way that you're as, as much as having it, it was amazing to see the the movie. I'm sure I, if you were like me, you sat there, you watched this thing on screen and we're just sort of like, you know, not in the making of it and then in the seeing it, you know, that on the night you first yep. ever saw it, you sort of sat there and thought, oh my God, I can't believe this. I couldn't be luckier. On the other hand, in the end, what you really remember about this is the having written the book and the book is like the thing that really means, I mean, that's the, book, the, but I'll, the years of labor and, you know, that's really, you own it in a way that the, that the movie you don't, yes, you don't but have I'll tell you, So yes, hundred percent, the book in many ways and people, you know, obviously the book's longer than the film and the film can only do so much in certain ways. I had a very lucky experience with this film. Curtis Hansen was our director. He's no longer alive, but he was a spectacular man. And they invited me into the, the editing room in LA towards the end after they'd done the first cut. And I literally sat there, I remember with Barbara, who was the editor, and we went through it and, and really were moved stuff around. I mean, it was a, to me, it was an amazing experience to see what you could do on film that I didn't even understand, didn't fully appreciate how much you could change yeah. a scene. So when I saw the final product, you know, yes, I had a smile across my my face, no, no question. But the film was is something I'm I'm also proud of because it was just yeah. a, selfishly a great experience, a great learning experience. Well, we had the great experience on on Game Change of working with Danny yep. Strong and Jay Roach in the same way. HBO was a wonderful home. You hear horror stories. I know we both do have heard horror stories of people who've written books and then are end up angry at at the adaptations yep. because they feel like their work has been disrespected or plundered in some way. This is not the experience that either one of us had because HBO totally. under under our mutual friend, Len Amato, who ran HBO yes. Films, was very attentive to the notion that these films should be true to the books that they were based on. And I think we were very lucky, both yep. of us, in that 100%. regard. Let's play Bobby Axelrod in this reporter thing from the pilot that Andrew pointed out. I was going to put on something from maybe later in the series, but this is from the pilot from Billions and it plays into something we just talked about. It's populist moment and some of the sentiments on Wall Street. Let's play that where the reporter is talking to Axe in the pilot of the series. Give me some insight into how you process information. 
The press acts like information's a dirty word. Everyone has access to the information, we just know how to analyze it better. Now you answer me one. When did it become a crime to succeed in this country? America used to salute the guy in the limousine. They wanted to be the guy in the limousine. They still want to, but now they throw eggs at it. So there's Bobby Axelrod from Billions, played by Damian Lewis. I quickly mentioned that, you know, you were a co-creator yep. of that. Brian, Brian and David. And David. And I know you're not, you know, this is not a thing. It was a co-creator of it. You're not in there. They're now in their head into their fifth season and, and their fifth season got disrupted yes. by COVID. I know you're not like actively involved. You're not a script writer. You're not I'm involved a proud in that papa. On, on a day-to-day basis. I'm a basis. proud papa and they're, they're doing a great job with it. Yes. I mean, but just to, tell me about that. Is Bobby Axelrod in your mind? I know they're all composite characters in the show, but what is Bobby... I bet the fifth season, he's much more like Michael Douglas on Wall Street. In the beginning of that series, he was a lot more, you know, he was more of a mixed character where he wasn't just a rapacious vulture. And now I think he's evolved into a more straightforwardly rapacious vulture over the course of the five seasons. I'm curious how you thought of, as you guys were first creating the series, what you were thinking of, you know, we know that the Giamatti character is a little bit based on Preet, Barrara. You know, but Bobby was what? And what was the aspiration the, in the creation of it? That character was was meant to exemplify what in the private equity and Wall Street world? So I don't want to speak for Brian and David now because they're the ones who are, who are really. No, know, no, no. But th- and they're doing a, they're doing a great job with who Bobby has become. But I'll say that, look, when I first started thinking about even trying to put a project like this together, this is probably 2011, right after Too Big to Fail with HBO, I thought somebody should do a show about this world of finance and try to get at who these characters on Wall Street really are. And obviously the hedge fund guys were it. They were the kings of Wall Street. And I remember going to LA and meeting some agents and people and they were like, Sorkin, nobody likes these guys. They hate these guys. Even if you're telling me that they're interesting or nice on one side and bad on the other, forget about it. And I remember going home, being kind of depressed about the situation. And my wife was watching USA Networks and she was watching Law & Order, repeat. And I said to her, you know what kind of shows work? Legal shows. Legal shows always work. Why? Why is that? Why do people love a procedural? And that was sort of like a a bit of a eureka moment because I thought, okay, if you could set these two worlds against each other, but more importantly, you have to set them against type, right? At least initially, even if you don't like the hedge fund guy on the outside, you have to sort of fall in love with him a little bit. And the prosecutor who's supposed to be doing everything in the name of right is invariably going to be conflicted because I'd covered a million white collar trials and as have you, I'm sure. And there's always something else going on. And so, you know, I think that Bobby, and I think you saw it in the pilot and you saw it obviously early on in the, I think the viewer has a perspective of, is he good? Is he bad? There's things I like about him. There's things I don't like about him. What is he really underneath? And I won't make a judgment on where Maybe you think he is right now, but I think that over time, the quote unquote real, the real version of everybody is supposed to emerge. And and maybe that's what you're, you're feeling right now. Well, yeah, I actually, now you said, I'm just going to play it. Let's play this more recent, this fifth season, Bobby Axelrod thing. We'll move off billions in a second, but I do want to, just as a sense of evolution, there was the Bobby Axelrod from the pilot. Here's Bobby Axelrod in season five of billions. Your headmaster was kind enough to seat me the mic for this morning's lesson. And I'm here to give you a little bit about what the school has been holding back from you. The goddamn truth about Darwin, scarcity, and the world you actually live in. It's not the warm, swaddled place your headmaster and your parents have told you about. It's populated by people like me who will tear you apart. Nature didn't select me. I selected myself by harnessing my nature. He's speaking to his, at his kids' boarding school, and he goes on to there to extol capitalism in a way that's very yes, Michael Douglas. Yeah. And I would just say, I think what your point is, is that the evolution of this character, maybe because of the, all of the battles he's been through with Chuck Rhodes, played by Paul Giamatti and others, is that he's a more nakedly hostily aggressive. He's still, there's things that are lovable at him, but he's become much more red. The redness in his tooth and claw are redder now than they were, I would say, in that to be at the inception. That may be, but let me say it again. I don't want to speak for Brian or David or the writers who are doing such an extraordinary job with it, but I will say that one of the things that's always, to me, made the audience, and I know myself, appreciate Bobby is his honesty. So to right. me, when I watch a scene like that, 
I see a guy, even whether you agree or disagree with him, I think you admire the honesty about it. Or at least maybe that's a hope. I don't know. So I asked you uh, to give me your top five Wall Street movies, and we've talked about Wall Street. We played yep. Wall Street already. It's the, basically the top of everybody's list. Your other five, just for the record here, Trading Places. Uh, what a, I mean, nobody's done a great just- Wall Street comedy. True Wall Street. I mean, you're going to see the next one is a bit of a dramedy, but it's not a true comedy. Right. So you got Wall Street, Trading Places, The Big Short, Wolf of Wall Street, and Boiler Room, which is a great list. They're super interesting. They come from different eras. Trading Place is obviously a straight-up comedy. Big Short, both a comedy and a drama. Wolf of Wall Street also has a lot of comedy yep. in it, right? I mean, what I find interesting about them all is that they are all, you know, as much as people both, I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't even say people love and hate Wall Street. Even people who, even people right, who- They hate who and hate Wall happy, Street, right. Right, they hate and hate Wall yep. Street, right? Even people who invest a lot of money in Wall Street and appreciate it for what it is don't really love Wall Street. But these movies are beloved. All of those, I mean, Wall Street trading places, the big short Wolf of Wall Street, at least. I'd say Boiler Room is not quite as iconic or pantheonic as those other four, but they're beloved movies. What is it about that list? What are the things that those representations of Wall Street, of those movies, what is it that makes them compelling to viewers? After you answer the question, I want to take it to what this next movie project that you're working okay. on is and how you think right. about it that way in terms of that. But what do you see in common in those movies that works? That doesn't just have people say, fuck it, I don't want to watch a fucking movie about Wall Street assholes. Why would I want to watch that movie? Because there's a fascination with the central character in each of those films. So much so that I think the audience either relates to them or wants to be them. Even though they know that they hate everything about them. And to me that, you know... You think about Michael Douglas, you know, when Oliver Stone put that film together, he wanted people to hate Michael Douglas and to hate Wall Street. And what happened? Michael Douglas became a hero. He became a hero to Wall Street. People on Wall Street wanted to be Michael Douglas. And I think that's similar in many ways to the character of Leonardo DiCaprio. There, there's a love-hate thing that goes on with these individuals because they have a certain code, they have a certain approach to life. And it's not something that I necessarily, I'm suggesting needs to be glamorized per se, but I think that the people who made those films found a way to do it in such a way that where they created this really compelling character, really compelling story, they some degree glamorized what this whole life was, but also were sticking needles in it the entire time. And that's the magic of it. I'm going to now play two pieces of sound. I want to put these two pieces of sound next to each other because I think it will illustrate perhaps the challenge that Andrew faces as he considers going on to do a movie project, which we'll talk about in a second, about the GameStop kind of phenomenon. So first, let's listen to Jordan Belfort yep. in Wolf of Wall Street. Here's Leo DiCaprio. All you have to do today is pick up that phone and speak the words that I have taught you, and I will make you richer and the most powerful CEO in the United States of fucking America. I want you to go out there and I want you to ram Steve Madden's stock down your clients' throats till they fucking choke on it. Till they choke on it and they buy 100,000 shares. That's what I want you to do. You be ferocious. You be relentless. You be telephone fucking terrorist. Now let's knock this motherfucker out of the park. So that's DiCaprio yep. playing Jordan Belford, okay, in Wolf of Wall Street. Now, here's a guy who got famous in the GameStop thing. This guy's name is Keith Gill. His avatar on Robin Hood is Roaring Kitty. He's giving, he's giving testimony here to the House Financial Services Committee. Let's listen to Roaring Kitty. It is true that my investment in that company multiplied in value many times. For that, I feel enormously fortunate. I also believe the current price of the shares demonstrates that I've been right about the company. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. I do not have clients and I do not provide personalized investment advice for fees or commissions. I'm just an individual whose investment in GameStop and posts on social media were based upon my own research and analysis. I've read a story 
in Deadline that you and our friend I mentioned before, Len Amato, who's now left HBO, Len Amato Jason Blum. and Jason yep. Blum from Blumhouse are developing a movie, a GameStop project. Yep. I ask you as I play Jordan Belford there, and then I played the real guy, Roaring Kitty, have you not set yourself a rather large challenge in trying to make a compelling film about someone who is that un-Jordan Belfort-like? Let's put it that way. There's a dork quotient here that is very high related to the story you're now if taking If only up. we could find a, a videotape of Jordan Belfort at a hearing in Congress, he might come across differently. Well, you think the Roaring Kitty guy is really like Jordan Belfort in private? Is that what you're trying to say? It's just because he was on- mm, I think, I, I think I the hearing does something to you. Uh, look, I Fair. think that this is the modern day- version of these stories. And I I do think the challenge is going to be in the characters, but the characters to me are so spectacular behind the scenes. Whether you think about the folks that Roy and Kitty represented, and by the way, there are so many other characters that glommed on and jumped on to the Roy and Kitty train that are so unique and frankly over the top. And if you can put them on screen, I, I think you'll you'll get really excited. I also think that, you know, between the story inside of what was happening at Robin Hood and inside the story that's happening at GameStop uh, themselves and inside the story at, that the hedge funds that were shorting this thing and inside the story of, you know, the market makers that got involved in this whole crazy thing. I think that th- there's there's enough character. I don't know if they're Jordan Belfort, but I think we'll get you pretty close. And I'm hoping that we can, uh, you know, find a fun way to put it on screen. Well, I obviously set those things up in a little bit of an unfair way just for fun yes. to kind of do the contrast. But, I, uh, um, and but I, I get it. I get the challenge that we've got. And that's uh, that's part of the job. There's a, there's, there's a kernel of truth in it, but it's not at all. Look, I mean, this team that you're working with on developing this film is a very high quality group of people. And the combination of your knowledge and what you've learned about how to translate stuff from this world onto screen with Jason Blum and, and Len Amato, that's a powerhouse team. So I think the challenge is high. But I also think that you guys are in, in a better position well, than any other you. group that I've, I've seen. I've I know there's a bunch them. of these. They're amazing. Well, there's a bunch of these projects, as you know, yes. in Hollywood. And I, when I think about the various projects I've I've heard written about in this in this sphere out in Hollywood, I look at yours and think you guys are head and tails above your competitors in terms of likely to make something that I will want to watch. So well, you're very kind to say that. I'll knock on the wood, but I, my microphone will fall off. You are a great and glorious American, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thank you for taking the time today to be on Hell and I Water. And we got to like hang out a little bit at some point soon. We absolutely do. Thank you so very much for having me. Appreciate it. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Andrew Ross Sorkin for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating in the Apple Podcast app. Hell and High Water will be taking a break next week, but we will be back on Tuesday, March 16th. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 